So this morning, uh, I already mentioned that we are in Acts chapter 1. We are going to begin a new sermon series together, uh, a sermon series through the book of Acts, and where the title of this series is Witnesses. I believe that's a core piece of what the Lord is doing in this book, is calling His apostles, and by extension also His disciples, to go and be witnesses of His kingdom. And the witness of His kingdom is that His kingdom is the scope of His reign, a reign that is exercised by means of what He has done in the gospel. And so let's begin together by looking at the beginning of this incredible book. We're going to spend really most of the next year together in it. I think it's going to be precious. It will become a precious book to us as a people. So let's begin by looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would ring true to us this morning, that we would hear from You, that Your Spirit would apply this text to our hearts. We pray that we would pay attention, that where our minds would drift and our hearts would go after other things subtly at times, where we would believe that this Word is for someone else or... The Scripture is something that we ought to pay attention to, take notes on so we could share with a friend or something like that, Lord, that You would convict our hearts to listen. And uh, Lord, I pray that You would do the miracle that You do from Your throne by Your Spirit to work salvation. This is our, our hope that we would grow in confidence, that we would be sent in obedience, and that You would save. Thank You, Lord. We pray this in Your name. Amen. This morning we're going to walk through this passage. We're just going to look at really most of the phrases that are here very briefly. We're going to do that, and what we'll see is that there are really three things, three aspects about the ministry of Jesus that rise to the surface 
uh, during the course of the text. We're going to jump right into it by looking at verses 1 through 3. In those first three verses, we see that Jesus is risen, right? Jesus is risen. How do we know this? Well, it says in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the author of this book that we're in right here, the Acts of the Apostles, is Luke. And Luke evidently has written another book. Some of you may know it. It's called, come on now, Luke. All right? It's actually a two-volume work. We have the Gospel of Luke, and then we have the book of Acts. And they serve together to bear witness to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the way the first book does so is explained to us at the beginning of the first book. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, it says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, that means others are writing these things, others saw them, others are providing narratives, we know that because we have Matthew and Mark and John, right? There are others who are writing these things down. It is remarkable the consistency that takes place between these accounts. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Do you hear that? How do we know these things? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, he says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I find that as sort of an investigative sort of guy, and I know that a number of you are as well, I find a tremendous confidence in those words. We have someone who's following eyewitnesses and ministers. We have someone who is paying attention to the word that was delivered. We have someone who followed all things closely for some time, and then he writes an orderly account so that we might have Certainty. You hear what the purpose is? The purpose of this orderly account is that we would have certainty concerning the things of Jesus Christ. You tell me just three things in the whole world about which you have certainty. Right? I know you can name two, death and taxes. But you know, other than that, man, this world's crazy. And Luke goes about an orderly account for our certainty. You know, in this, in this world where religion is delegated to a, a thing of the heart, an inward thing that you're supposed to keep behind closed doors, and then when you go out, uh, everybody else has their own religion, and, and everybody just sort of goes around with a, a sense that there's, there's some sort of uh, happiness that they should have in their soul because of their religious thoughts and so on, but convictions might be too far to call it. There's no certainty in that. The way that we treat the spiritual things today is not the way that the writer of Acts and Luke treats these things. This is an orderly account so that we might have certainty, the certain sort of certainty that might lead to conviction and a hope that isn't hopefulness, wishful thinking, but a hope that is grounded in what is true. Now, this book is written to someone named Theophilus. 
Now, Theophilus is probably some sort of patron or leader in the early church, but as the, the letter is written to an individual, that individual's purpose is to share it with the church that is around them, and that's exactly what happened. And so Luke and Acts wind up being distributed uh, about the church, even to this day, which is astounding in its, of itself, that it's still making its rounds and has come to us. Are we listening? Now, what's interesting is the word Theophilus, that name means friend or lover of God. That's a good name. I'm wondering if maybe we'll see that starting to show up among those who are having kids these days. Theophilus, all right? There's a recommendation for you if you're looking for one. But what a great name for the church. Theophilus. We are friends and lovers of God because he is so loved us. And this orderly account, we are told, is about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now again, this is a rebuke of the way that we treat spiritual things in our day, in particular the way that we treat Jesus as some great spiritual teacher. This is a rebuke of that because it says that we are being told about all that Jesus began to do and teach. We can't make Jesus simply a set of moral platitudes and morality tales. Jesus is more than what he said. And let's be honest. In a biblically illiterate culture, we rarely even know what he said. And what he said, we tend to ignore most of it. Jesus is not just a speaker. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a philosopher. Jesus is a doer. And a major point of both Luke and Acts is that what he did is called the gospel. And it's called the gospel because it's good news. And it's good news about the kingdom of God. And here's why it's about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is the king. Of this, Luke wants us to be certain. Now in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. So... His first book was all about all that Jesus said and did until the day that he was taken up. Jesus is risen and he is ascended. So, if someone asks you the question, where is Jesus, what is your answer? Where is Jesus? We're only going to touch on it briefly now, but we'll see that it's actually a key teaching in these first verses of the book, and it's a key doctrine, a key teaching of the church. Let's remember a few things about Jesus. Jesus has taken on flesh. You get that? It's one of our big holidays, right? This isn't just something that he did in the incarnation only for a season. Jesus has taken on flesh, and then he rose in the flesh, our other major holiday, right? And then, in this passage, he is taken up in the flesh. And so if the question, where is Jesus, means anything, it means wherever up is. Any of the kids among us could answer that question. You read this passage, you say, where is Jesus? Up. Whatever that is referring to, this is where Jesus is. This is important. 
You might remember in our time in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand. Where? You hear the where question? Hear the location question? One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Where? In heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. He's not in a man place. He's not in just a human creation, earthly place. He's in a heavenly, eternal place. Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, even though it is over this world. Jesus' throne is not of this world. It is a heavenly throne from which He rules and reigns over all of creation. Because we have a high priest. Our king is also our high priest, and he is in the heavenly places. We can be confident. Now listen, I know what you're thinking. Jesus is God. I'm glad you're thinking that, by the way. And so, being God, he shares the attributes of God. He is all-powerful. He knows all things. He sees all things. And answer the question, where is Jesus? You could say, everywhere, right? He's not bound by time or space. He is God. And so it is with confidence that we can believe the promise of Jesus in Matthew, right after he gives the Great Commission. Behold, I am with you. That is an absolutely appropriate response to the question, where is Jesus? He's with me. He's with his church as we go in mission as he had just commanded in them when he says that he'll be with them. Even to the end of the age, he's with us. But he is with us in a particular way. He is with us as high priest and king in the heavenly places. We have a high priest and king in the heavenly places who is with us. Luke clearly wants us to to understand that Jesus is the incarnate and risen Son of God, and that risen Son of God has ascended to the heavenly places. Therefore, His being with us is a spiritual closeness, a real, as we will see in the next chapter, a very real spiritual closeness of the King of heaven who has ascended to His rightful throne. This gives such confidence to a people who are called to be witnesses of Him. Especially when that call, we know, involves taking up a cross and following after Him daily. He is with us. And He's with us in a king and high priest way. He's alive. Verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is alive. And the testimony of Luke about this is found in his first book. But the book of Acts hangs on this critical, repeated reality that Jesus is alive. Jesus is ascended, yes, but he's no less alive. He continues the life 
that he began in the incarnation. That life raised from the dead and rose bodily so that there is a man, a God-man, make no mistake. There is a man who is alive on the throne of heaven. He is the firstborn from among the dead. And we can know this with confidence by many proofs over the course of 40 days. The king is alive. The king is alive. That's why, that's why it's appropriate for the first song to be rejoice. The king is alive. Which is where verse 3 really goes. It says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is the, the chief topic of the whole book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the spread of the news of Jesus and his gospel. Now, let me ask this question. I think this is very important for us this morning. If the book of Acts is about the spread of the news of Jesus and his gospel by means of the many witnesses that bear witness to his name as they spread about out to all the nations of the earth, what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, consider this. Just follow this logic for one moment. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. So the presence of Jesus is the at-handness of the kingdom. So when John the Baptist and others go about saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what do they mean? Jesus walks out and, and John the Baptist could have said, see, look, so at hand I can touch him. You see, where is the extent of a kingdom? What boundaries are there to the kingdom? Is it not the boundaries of the reign of the king? Isn't a kingdom intimately interwoven with the king himself? The extent of the kingdom is the extent of the rule of the king, and the king has come. And he says, yeah, I'm still in charge. And I'm going to show you the means by which I will rule. He goes to a cross. He purchases a people. He raises from the dead and he says, eternal life by grace through faith is the means of my transformative rule. The king has come. R.C. Sproul, he says, the theme of Acts is this, the church's obedience to Christ's commission and commandment to be his witnesses as the ascended king, the king of kings and lord of lords. If you wonder why the first century church turned the world upside down and why we do not, it is because they preached the kingdom of God and we do not. Do you believe that there's a king? Do you believe that right here, right now, in, in his people, the church, in our lives, that he has actual authority? And do you believe that as we go with news of his gospel, that has, he has the authority to invade human hearts, to enact faith and repentance, and has the authority to forgive sins? That's the kingdom of God at hand right here in Brevard County. It is as we believe this and preach this, as it is the confidence from which we move and speak and live and obey. From that place, 
God will continue to turn the world upside down. The teaching of King Jesus to which we are to bear witness is what he did in his life, what he did in his death, what he did in his resurrection to deal with the reality of sin and rebellion. This is the the way that he goes about the power of his kingdom. It's the way that he administers his kingdom is by means of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and continuing reign. So we are to speak of three things. We are to speak of his righteousness and his cross. When we bear witness, we bear witness to his righteousness and his cross. And when we bear witness, we we speak of repentance and faith. We bear witness to his command that we would repent and believe. And we speak of forgiveness and eternal life. Because these are the precious things of the kingdom. We have a Jesus, and that Jesus is risen. He is alive, and He is King. Now, I want to look just just a moment at verses 4 and 5 as we look at the next aspect of Jesus' reign. Jesus, here we see, is Jesus the Redeemer. Now, verse 4 says this, And while staying with them, Jesus staying with His apostles, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Uh, John Calvin, I'm I'm looking at a commentary of his that he wrote on the book of Acts, and it's tremendous. I'm finding it to be extremely helpful. In it, he writes this, It was appropriate that the apostles should be the first to get in the habit of obedience. Did you hear what the Lord told the disciples to do? Go and wait. Don't leave. He doesn't send them yet. He tells them what he's going to send them to do, even where he's going to send them. But right now, obedience looks like waiting in Jerusalem. It was appropriate that the apostles should be the first to get in the habit of obedience, for they were soon to lay Christ's yoke upon the neck of the world. The teaching of Christ. That yoke that Jesus himself says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All it takes is faith to wait upon the Lord. What a humbling statement. To be a witness to Christ, to bring good news and and the call to faith in His name. And therefore, His witnesses have to be submitted to his authority. If he says wait, what do his witnesses do? How do we bear witness to the fact that he's the king and his kingdom is at hand? How do you do that? If he says wait, you wait, right? And if he says go, what do you do? You go. And the going doesn't bear witness to our merit doesn't bear witness to our righteousness. It bears witness to the fact that there's a king and he said what to do. Because he's king and he has a right. We believe that he is redeemer. And he has sent us to wait upon him. And when we wait upon him, we will see very quickly he equips his church to go with him. There's one more key thing that I want to see in verse 5. 
It says in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John baptized with water. Now, Jesus here is echoing the words of John the Baptist himself, okay? In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist himself says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there is a clear distinction that's being made here, but I believe that the distinction that's being made is not between two baptisms. I think the distinction that is being made is between two persons. That was always the concern of John the Baptist, that he would be lesser and that Christ would be greater. Remember, the whole purpose of John the Baptist was to point and to prepare the way for Jesus. So too does the baptism of John pave the way for the baptism of Jesus. It bears witness to that which is greater and real in the Christ. So the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance, only points to a need for the coming of Christ. Baptism with water is only effective if there is also a spiritual baptism that takes place. Let's put it another way. You can be baptized in the River Jordan with John the Baptist all you want. And you can call him a great teacher and declare the day that that water washed over you, but if Jesus never comes, it's nothing. But as we go in faith and say He's coming, He's at hand, and I repent because He's the King and I was a rebel, and my only hope is that He would save me, Jesus comes and He forgives And all that was symbolized in those waters of baptism are real in the power of the Christ. Here's what I mean to say. There's nothing that any man or woman, any preacher or person can do with water, with bread, with grape juice, or any other religious practice that can save the lost. There's nothing. In fact, there's nothing that you can do in attendance. I find that people don't really seem to care much for the sacraments or for the ordinances of the church and those religious behaviors. But the one thing that we still think might be able to save us is mere attendance. But there is no attendance, there is no religious ritual by which we can save. Jesus alone is the fulfillment and power of any effective religious endeavor. Water? It's water. Preachers, just preachers. Jesus is the one who saves. So repentance and baptism have their substance and power in Jesus. Does that mean we ignore repentance and baptism? No. But in them, we long for the power and presence of Jesus. We say, Jesus, my only hope is that you would come. I repent of running after other vain hopes. My only hope is that you would come and you would do so in grace and mercy. So the baptism of John and the baptism we practice today are really the same reality. They point to the need of Christ, the hope of redemption applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so baptism doesn't do anything. 
But for the one who is baptized in faith and repentance and in hope of salvation, he, she is surely saved by the power and grace of Jesus Christ to which water baptism points. That's the point of the baptism of Jesus Christ to which any faithful baptism actually points. The purpose and distinction here between water baptism and the baptism with the Holy Spirit is to carefully distinguish the external sign administered by a mere human using earthly means from the inward result of salvation administered by Jesus, who alone is the Redeemer, using spiritual means. We're told you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In just a couple weeks, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, a fascinating passage. It gets a lot of airtime, and it should. It's a good one. We're going to see the Holy Spirit come in a powerful demonstration of the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see the authority of Jesus on public display by His Spirit. But the whole purpose of the display is summarized in Jesus, in the Apostle Peter's final concluding application in his sermon. So we have this amazing spirit of tongues and fire, right? going on. You think that Peter's really going to talk about that a lot, right? Here's what he says. Here's his big conclusion. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. You see, just as the baptism of Jesus comes down, the call is to repent and be baptized. The call is to believe. The call is to, ex- to exhibit the external signs that bear witness to the inward reality that Jesus is our only hope. The connection between the very normal outward sign of repentance and baptism and the sure hope that Jesus' inward work of forgiveness and the gift of His gracious presence. Jesus is the Redeemer. It's central to the whole book if we stray from it and look to other lesser things, there is no hope. In verses 6 through 11, the final aspect of this passage about Jesus is that Jesus is reigning. We've talked about it a good bit already, but there are some things in here that I think, to be honest, they, they touch a nerve. I know they did it in me this week. In verses 6 through 11, it begins in this way in Jesus' reign. So when they had come together, so they are together when they say this. What they're about to say isn't just like one of Peter's crazy comments again. All right. This is the apostles together. And they came together and said, Lord, we've been talking about this for the last 40 days you've been with us. And um, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I scratch my head and I think, will they ever get it? This doesn't seem to be about Israel. This seems to be about Jesus and His kingdom. His authority that stretches to the very ends of the earth. But we are so desperate for Jesus to make much of us and our kingdom. And that's why Jesus' response is so important. Jesus' response is, it is not for you to know. I love that he doesn't even address their question. He just says, wrong question. Nope, we're not talking about that. 
I've been talking about something else, and if you, if you would listen to it, and instead of listening so much to your heart's desires, then you might be able to actually hear the word of my promise. You see, it's not for you to know because God is doing something. And when God does something, you see, it's His thing. And it's in His way, and it's in His time, and it's by His authority and power. And God's thing will never be our thing. God's thing will never be our thing until our thing is God's thing. Until we stop and ask, Oh Lord, what have you actually revealed? Stop asking questions about what I would desire and start asking questions about what have you revealed. And there are things about which he... he has a work that he has done and will do about Israel. But he hasn't revealed those things, so stop asking about those things. Because There's some things that, like, I just rose from the dead. Why don't you ask about that? Why don't you ask a little bit about the kingdom of heaven applied to the human heart and forgiveness? Like, I ran around forgiving people. How do you think I did that? Why don't you ask some questions about the things that I have revealed We do the same thing. God has told us so much about His will for our life in His Word. And yet we ask questions like this. Tell me if this is not true also of your heart. God, what should I do with my life? And then we open up the Scriptures like, what should I do with with my life? And His answer is, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. I didn't talk about that, now did I? When will you help me find a spouse, Lord? When can I finally be happy in my job? You can search and search and search. And he never gives a date. He never fixes that time. I I pray for you that he does have a time fixed for you. When can I get a hold of my finances, Jesus? And the response is, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons. For there are things about the promises of God that have been revealed in the Scriptures, and we can have absolute confidence about these things. Again, here's what John Calvin says about this. We always insist on basing our decisions, i.e. our obedience and our desires, on the outcome of future events. Lord, if you will demonstrate to me that I can have that that wonderful family that my heart longs for, if I can just have that job that I long for, if I can just have the financial security that I long for, then, Lord, I will know how to obey you. He continues, the Lord hides the future from us because it is he who directs our actions. And I'm scratching my head thinking, if he's not going to tell me where I'm going, how is he going to direct my actions? How can I know to go there? It is not our understanding of events, but our faithful obedience to His Word, moment by moment, waiting upon Him. How is God directing our actions if He won't tell us the future? Well, what He's done is He's told us what to be busy with, and to be honest, it takes a lot of time to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, have you nailed that? Have you graduated? You're like, got it, now show me how to get a hold of my finances. You know? 
fruit of the Spirit on full display in your life? Or do you have a dependence upon the Spirit of God to say, God, give me the gift of patience and peace and joy? Have you labored in prayer there? All the time I am struck by how often I say, God, what is your will for my life? He said, I I can't be more clear. I can't be more clear to you. If you just pay attention and, and maybe even try to trust me in faithful obedience for just a couple minutes. It's as we are busy with these things that we will discover the fruit of the Spirit that occupies our time. It says we're busy with word and prayer that we will discover wisdom for daily decisions, moment-by-moment obedience. This is what God sent His Spirit to do in His disciples. His Spirit grants us faith to believe what the Father has revealed according to promise, and then to be witnesses of it and to remind us of the truth of what He has revealed. And when we walk in it, we discover the faithful life. We're told in verse 8 that you will receive power. The Holy Spirit is not merely power by which you do something. But what we will see throughout the book of Acts and really throughout the whole of the Scriptures is that the Holy Spirit is power to change us from the inside out that we might actually want to do something. You see, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, it says, you will be my witnesses. But when the apostles become witnesses, they're not a people who would rather be back on fishing boats who just happen to have power to change the world. This is a people who were longing for the restoration of the kingdom in Israel who lose that desire and gain a desire for the glory of Christ in the nations. So much so that they they die for it. They become a single-minded people. They become witnesses to the king and his kingdom. You see, the Spirit doesn't just give power. He changes hearts to desire the things of God. And friends, there's no greater power than that. I've tried to change my heart. My heart is wicked and deceptive and deceitful. The power of God is to transform my heart to want the things of God. Friends, that's faith. The power of God is to grant faith. Verse 9 says, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. Here it is, the king. He takes his seat in the heavenly places, and from his throne, he exercises the rule and authority of his kingdom. From his throne, he sends his spirit, as we will see in coming weeks, and from his throne, he sends his witnesses. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are. To this day, witnesses to the risen and reigning Christ. Witnesses risen, redeeming, reigning King Jesus. There are only two reactions to the news of the coming of the King. Look at the end of the passage. It says, This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The King is coming. He's reigning now. But there's a day that he is coming to consummate and to complete. His kingdom. And there are only two ways to prepare for His coming. One is to fortify yourselves. 
That's what rebels got to do when the king comes. Fortify yourselves in your rebellion. Figure out how to rebel better. Because the king is coming. Now, if you know anything about that particular king, fortify yourselves all you want, but it isn't going to work. There are only two ways. Fortify yourselves in your rebellion or repent. God, I, I fortified myself in my rebellion enough, but I hear news that you're coming again. And I hear there, there's news by which a rebel like me could be admitted not only as a citizen, but as a son and inheritor of all the gifts of your kingdom. I repent. I, the ways of this world are folly. And I call you to that this morning, to confess that apart from Jesus, every one of us is a rebel against the authority of King Jesus. Call us to repent of rebellion and believe in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ to make a way by which rebels might become sons, inheritors of the kingdom, men, women, Jews, and Gentiles, spread out all the nations become inheritors of the great kingdom of our God. There is no other way for rebels to become citizens in the kingdom. It's not going to work to overthrow it, but by grace, he brings us into it. Last thing, I want to echo the call of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that we too would become witnesses of the resurrection. That as, as we gain entrance to the already present kingdom of God because the king rules and reigns today from his throne, that we would bear witness to what we have seen and heard by faith. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work the confidence that the gospel authors set out to work. And since your spirit is the inspire, the, the, the God breather of the word, we can be confident that there is power that you would work faith in the people of God this morning. And for those who are still far off, who are trying to fortify themselves in rebellion, Lord, I pray that you would convict of folly, humble in faith, apply grace for forgiveness, and redeem. Lord, that all of the redeemed would say, oh, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes and bear witness to that even as we scatter into community groups that our witness is of what He has done among us. Not a witness to the greatness of our gathering, but to the greatness of our God who has gathered us and made us one. Thank you, Lord. We trust in you for these things. It is confident faith with which we pray these things. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our risen Redeemer and King. Amen.